I want you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to do a, two or three studies on overcoming because that's one of the major themes of discipleship, seldom mentioned, seldom heard of in a lot of circles and sadly by a lot of people, but it's one of the important themes in Scripture for disciples. It's overcoming. And in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, that's an important thing for us, to overcome. But it's also important for us to know why, as well as how we overcome. Now, it's costly, because everything has to change for you to go from a passive church member who is born again, being enlightened, and now challenged to apply what God is showing you against all the things in the world that are designed to overthrow you. I mean, we are made commissioned to pull down strongholds in our lives. You know that. That's what warfare is all about. It's getting the victory over all those things that control us all those weaknesses that we have about things, personal feelings or habits that we can't seem to break, things that dominate us. A lot of marriages are dominated by things that have never been overcome. That's why it's not a happy home. That's why it doesn't have good results in a lot of things that it tries to do because that it's dominated by things the devil does know what the devil is the author of. I titled the message tonight, The Cost, a little series on the cost of overcoming. Because the message, at least to me, and I'm sure it is to you if you listen, the message is a challenge. At some point in all the teaching, you find yourself thinking, in order for me to do that, I'm going to have to quit doing this. Or in order for me to gain that kind of an advantage in lifestyle, I'm going to have to deal with something over here. But see, it's the something over here that's keeping you from overcoming. So you're going to have to pay a price. You're going to have to awaken out of your sleep. You're going to have to be alerted to. You're going to have to redeem the time. You're going to have to dig in and study and learn. And then you're going to have to use your will to trust God for good results. You're going to have to act like something is true when... There's no evidence of his truth anywhere. Well, you got to believe because overcomers are, are believers. That's the way they work. In chapter 5, I think he said in verse 4, the victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. So that factors into all of this. And yet, I think we all know this, that a lot of people, and if it's true here, then just accept it. But Christians in general are very complacent and somewhat indifferent to what is preached or taught if it means they have to change their life. Instead of me changing, let me just look at all the other things that I do that are good, and surely that's good enough that I don't have to do this. I go to church, I give, I've been baptized in water, I help people, I donate at soup kitchens, or all the good things, decent things that a lot of people do. 
But then you keep listening and you realize there is no substitute for overcoming. There is not something else you can do that is good enough that you don't have to overcome because you're faced with overcoming all through the scripture. Let me try and define very simply what I would call an overcomer. The word overcomer comes from the Greek word Nike, N-I-K-E of all things, or Nikeo, or Nikos, several different words, but they all mean basically the same thing. It means to prevail. And obviously it involves, implies a struggle. You don't just get up in the morning and prevail. There's got to be something that you prevail over. And so I'd define it like this. One who prevails, conquers, or subdues with spiritual authority. Now that in itself could take about a half an hour to really get to the bottom of. But an overcomer is one who conquers, prevails, subdues, or gets the victory over whatever out there in life you got to wrestle with, and you do that with spiritual authority. And you have to ask yourself, well, what do you mean by spiritual authority? Well, the only source for spiritual authority is God. And the only one you can get authority from is the Lord. And our text said that because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So the living Christ inside of a person is what you have to access. It's who you turn to. It's whose words you make application of in your life in the wars of life. Didn't Paul tell us we fight? In Ephesians 6, doesn't he say we're in a warfare? We're fighting against an enemy that is very real. You can't see him. You can't all of those physical things, but it's, it's a real battle. It's evidenced by fear. Fear's real, isn't it? Well, fear's an enemy. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but it's very real because Fear is the one thing that dominates most everybody. Keeps you from going on with the Lord is being afraid of the consequences. Afraid of what somebody would think if you spoke in tongues. Or what would people think if I begin to dress like that? Why, well, I wouldn't be popular in school. Girls or boys would mock me. I wouldn't be popular. Oh, heaven forbid. See, there's a certain kind of fear of self not being what you wanted self to be. And yet Jesus makes it plain in the Bible that self has to die. Self is an enemy of the cross. It's what will keep you from going all the way. And anything that wants to say, no, I don't want to do that, you have to truly crucify your flesh with its affections and its lust on that cross. Or you won't make it. I mean, you won't go. You'll give up and quit. You know, the Bible talks about if you give up and quit, obviously you did not conquer, you did not prevail. Now, for those who would say already, if somebody's saying, well, that kind of brings condemnation to me, why don't you just listen to what's being said and quit feeling sorry for yourself? Uh, people say, oh, that message is too hard. There's nothing hard about it. The hard thing is the hardness of our hearts and the hardness of our heads. We don't want to change. And God says, we're going to change. 
Sometimes I think, you know, you keep talking about the same thing all the time. I will, and I'm praising the Lord for it now. Because if this doesn't come into our life and this way of life doesn't prevail in our lives, we can't overcome. We're not overcomers. We live overcome. We live caving in to pressures and problems and thoughts or opinions or fear or dread. Oh, my, what if that, you know, oh, no, not. The healing message, lovely message, wonderful message. Everybody would love to have it, but the way it's acquired and the way God says we approach it is it's just fearful for a lot of people. Well, what if it doesn't work? Well, you know what would happen to you? Oh, boy, what if your parents did? What if your friends say they found out you believe like that? And you knew people that had believed like that, and what happened to them? And, oh, boy, it's fear. Listen to me. As your brother and your pastor, if you don't overcome these things and you live being overcome, there is no reason why all of us should not prevail over anything and everything in our life, I don't care if they've been in the family tree for a thousand years. I don't care if you were born with it, got it when you were inebriated one night at the wrong place, the wrong people and picked up a spirit. There is no way with information from God you cannot deal with that, be liberated from it, and be set free and walk free. God brought losers to him. We were all a bunch of losers, the whole bunch of us. There wasn't a good one or a perfect one amongst us, not one. And God brought the likes of us before him and tell us, I'm going to set the whole bunch of you free. Every one of you can be free. Every one of you can walk in true newness of life and not looking back or long to go back. But you can look ahead, be glad you're free from what was behind you, and walk as though everything you've heard God say is going to work for you. And every time the devil tries to get in the way and say, oh, you better walk... You say, get thee behind me, Satan, and you overcome because you got something inside of you you never had before. It's the power of God. Now, this life is full of trouble. That's nothing new to us. We are warned of all the obstacles and the pressures and the persecutions and the difficulties. Those are the words that the Bible used to tell us what our down the road looks like. This is not an easy world to live in as a Christian. And it's a terrible world to live in if you're not a Christian because it's a hopeless world. Nothing is for sure. Nothing is absolute. Everything is iffy, chancy, and maybe not or maybe so. It's just a liberal world with no future. And when God brings you out of that world, that thing was birthed in you, that world was, and it owns you, and you come to the Lord and the rest of your life is going to be spent dealing with all the effects of the world and getting rid of this and getting rid of that and casting down this stronghold, casting down that stronghold until you begin to free yourself and you begin to walk liberated and have peace and joy in your heart, knowing that you're not through. You'll, you'll fight until the Lord comes, but you will fight, and you're not afraid to fight. And one of the real serious warnings in the Bible, like in Hebrews 10, Remember, it says the just shall live by faith. But it says this, because you need to know both sides of the coin. But if any man draws back, why would you draw back? Why would you draw back? Because walking by faith is not easy. 
your mind is deluged with thoughts of doubt and uncertainty. How do you know it'll work? Well, it may not work. It didn't work for this one. I know where it didn't work for him. Walking by faith means you are taking God at his word, living as though what is said is true, even though it hadn't happened yet. Expecting God to do what he said, living like he's going to do that. Oh, it's not easy. Just not easy. A lot of people draw back. The word draw back means to cower. It means what happens, it's, it's a word that describes what happens when fear begins to control. You draw back, you cower, you cave in, you become a slave to fear. And so you draw back and you withdraw. But here's what the Bible says. In fact, you can find it real easy. In Hebrews 10, would you look at it? Because we're talking about overcoming instead of being overcome. In Hebrews 10, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, what does it say? My soul, God says me, I have no pleasure in him. Let's just be real honest. God said, if I draw back, he has no pleasure in me. Is that true? I ask myself, then why would I draw back? Am I afraid? Probably. Am I unsure? I mean, I'm not really, it's not so much fear, it's just that I'm not real clear on this yet. Probably. And what if you did draw back? Are you done? Not if you're still breathing. Just like if you're not real clear about the word and you're trying to do it because she did it or he did it and you're hoping it works because it worked for them. And it failed and you fell apart, you whatever. Let me tell you something, as long as you're living and eating and breathing, you can regroup. You can repent, get back in the game and keep going. God's long suffering. He knows the days of our life in this world are called the days of our flesh. And he knows how people are dominated by their flesh. And God picks you up out of the, Dirt you fell in, a righteous man falls, but God keeps picking him up. You don't quit. You don't turn around and run off and say it was too hard. I couldn't do it. I don't, that's too, too legal. You don't do that. You get up and you say, I missed it. I failed. I let go. I turned back. I drew back. I gave up. I turned back. And I'm sorry. I am truly ashamed of myself, but I want to get up and dust myself off, and jump back in here. Now, the mind says, oh, no, you had an operation. You can't have an operation to get back in the game. Well, I'm going to. Scar and all. I'm coming back. God doesn't say, uh-uh, you're out of here. Because if when God says, uh-uh, you're out of here, you don't want to come back. You don't want to come back. When you're bothered by things, God's involved. If he picks you back up. Now, if any man draw back... God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. If you draw back, you repent and get back up. It's when you don't want to come back. It's when you draw back and then look for an excuse or a company of excuse makers or somebody who doesn't 
believe that any of that is true and you begin to align yourself with that so Hebrews 10 no longer is in your life, that's when you're in trouble. Listen to me. We cannot run from the word. We cannot face difficult things in this life, fail, and then make excuses for why we failed as though it wasn't our fault. You can't do that. You're being overcome. You're not triumphing or prevailing. You're being overcome. Remember what Jesus said about this life? John 16, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, he said, I've overcome the world. That's the greater one that's in you, the overcoming Christ, from whom we draw our strength from. Don't we be strong and the power of his might, if he could overcome? Me too. You too. Amen. I can do it also. Well, not only that, but we can't draw back. We can't make excuses. We can't hide. We can't cower. Even though that's easy to do, we must prevail. And though you lost a battle in your life, you haven't lost the war. And you pick yourself up. You never, ever quit. You never turn your head from the truth that just makes you shudder. You look at it and you overcome shuddering. Not stuttering, but shuddering. You overcome and prevail over that because this is the way God wants us to live and this is what he expects from us. We can't lose battles. Talk about our weaknesses and our failures. Draw back and then pat ourselves on the back for trying. That's not spiritual at all. That's just like somebody who says, well, I know you don't feel good, but let's talk about it. I don't want to talk about how I feel. Well, I know things aren't going well in your life. I don't want to talk about that. I have a word for that. I'll talk about the word if you want to. But you're not being real. I think I'm being really, really real. Two reallys, really, really real. I think I do know in whom I have believed. And what I want the devil here coming out of this mouth is what God said. Not what my body says. Not what my checkbook says. Not what the marriage journal says. Not what anything else says that I have to overcome. Because you see, I know in whom I have believed and he has told me that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and therefore, this that is trying to keep me from being spiritual or gaining ground spiritually, this thing has loomed up, jumped up in front of me and said, oh, no, you can't make it. Well, I believe I can. I not only believe I can, I believe I will. Because, you see, there's no reward to me in this life. Maybe the next one. What do we have to face when this life is over if we never tried we never fought. We never labored. We never dug in and got down and fought the devil. What happens if we never did that and never prevailed? Turn to Revelation 21 and verse 8. Revelation 21 and verse 8. This is one of those good verses. He that overcometh. If you're an overcomer, if you're trying, if you're trying tonight, if you're not mouthily trying, you know, mouthily trying is a good English, isn't it? 
if you're not just verbally talking about overcoming, but you really are, you're talking about, but you're really trying. Or you're seeking out people who overcome to ask them for help or to explain things. I mean, you're trying. You're not complacent. You're not withdrawing and not even putting effort into it. You're trying. You're searching the Lord. I mean, your, your mind is active spiritually to, to find solutions to these weaknesses in your life. And, and how can I apply the word of God to overcome? You might say, I'd like to be able to reach at least the last stage of my life and have peace. Because everything this world, listen to me, you young folks especially, everything this world has to offer you from here on is negative. It's all about death, dying, killing, maiming, and destroying. It's full of hate. It's full of evil men and imposters. You're living in that environment, and God says to overcome that and not let that thing control you. It's not a time to get political and start daring somebody to deal with you. I'll tell you one thing, you deal. Not like that, no. It's trusting in the Lord. You see, by trusting in the Lord, you will overcome. He's behind it. Revelation 21 and verse 8, he says, He that overcometh shall what? Shall inherit all things and will prove to have a relationship with me and I with him. Remember Jesus said once, I never knew you, Matthew 7. And Jesus said, I never knew you. They told him how busy they were in the church and in religion. They were just busy doing things a lot and active. Not necessarily overcoming. Let me tell you something. You can be a busy in church. You can be a famous pastor, book writer, TV, whatever. You can do a lot of things that people see and not be an overcomer because you cave into fears. You put a $200,000 life insurance policy on you because, boy, my lifestyle now, you know, in a big house and all this stuff I got, and, boy, that's pretty expensive. I want my wife to be... You start thinking like that. That's the world's way of thinking. That's how the world trains people to think about tomorrows that never come. Wasting a lot of stuff on the systems of this world that fail and fade every time. You come to the place where my hope is in Jesus Christ. Leave this world with nothing and gain eternity and have peace, and not fret anymore, and not worry about tomorrow or worry about the next terrorist attack. Or who's going to blow up somebody in your school or shoot? I mean, you quit thinking like that because you are able to say, I will not let that kind of fear dominate me or my children. I'll homeschool. No, you can do that too. But you can just say if you're in a public school, my child is under the blood, not the curse. Like Isaiah said, no weapon formed against me or this child or our family shall prosper. They'll all fizzle and fade. I will not be victimized by the threat of death and loss. I refuse that. I'll, 
I overcome that in Jesus' name. Wouldn't you like to have that? Wouldn't you, I mean, wouldn't you really like that? Wouldn't that be good if you could constantly have a smile on your face that telegraphs an inward peace? Wouldn't you? Me too. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way it ought to be. But if, if you want to inherit all things, you have to overcome. Oh, I go to church. That's good. I'm glad you do. Oh, I sing, I sing in the choir. That's good. I'm glad you do. I teach Sunday school class. That's good. I'm glad you do. I read my Bible every morning. That's good. I'm glad you do. I donate to many causes. That's really good. I'm glad you do. I care about people. That's good. I'm glad you do. That doesn't mean you overcome anything. You may still cower under pressure. You probably have friends you talk about your fears to, the things that are dominating you and overcoming you. And at some point in your Christian life, you're going to have to realize that's not how you overcome. For out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaketh. Fear in the heart comes out the mouth. Dread in the heart comes out the mouth. Hate in the heart comes out the mouth. When you start talking political talk, oh, I'll tell you what, them buzzards and all, you need to quit talking like that. Too many people I know are referring to the authorities in words that are not good. You're being overcome. I really don't want that to happen here. I want this whole bunch to be an overcoming church. Not proud of it, not patting ourselves on the back of it. We can't do that ourselves. Only God can do it. We thank him for it. How does the enemy snare us? How does, what does the devil do that really allows him to dominate us? Let me mention five things tonight. Number one, he dominates and snares and controls us through ignorance. Ignorance. You can be ignorant and have a high IQ. You know what I mean? To say, to say to somebody, well, you're ignorant. Now, you could say that to somebody who's just dumb and doesn't know any better. Or you could say it to well-versed, educated people. You're ignorant. I don't mean you have a low IQ and you're inferior intellectually. I'm just saying the truth that you need, you don't know about. You're unaware of the truth. But I go to church every week. I did too. I think the church, I probably, I, I don't want to make all this up and make it sound like it's that way, but it seems like when I was growing up, church was the proper thing to do that decent people did. I don't remember much of what was said until God convicted me the week, the months or two before I got saved, but I didn't go there to learn. I didn't go to church to gain a deeper education about God and his way for my life. That wasn't my plan. I went there because that's where I grew up. My mother went there. That's just where we did. We just went to church. You got baptized when you were 10 to 12. And when you got baptized, you got to take communion. And then you went to Sunday school class and you just did that. And yet you live all these years in all of that kind of a system. 
and you really never know much, know very little about God or his way. Very little did you ever learn that you would ever make application of in a trial because when trouble comes, people run to a source so that the world teaches us that way. We run to a doctor, we run to a medicine chest, or we run somewhere we can get some relief or some help. And if we said, why don't you just trust in the Lord? They said, what? That's so alien. Maybe you folks have been here so long, you think I'm making this up. I'm telling you, folks, there's not many Christian gatherings in the world. I'm, I'm talking about good people. I'm not talking about inferior bad people. I'm talking about good people who just are victims in the sense that they have never been taught. Now, a lot of them don't want to be taught. We'll get to that in a minute. But they just didn't know any better. They didn't know they were supposed to do this. They didn't know that a Christian could do that. I didn't know that this is the way that God has for us. I read my Bible every day, but I never saw that. We never had that in Sunday school class. The preacher never taught on that. The preacher wasn't hired to teach. The preacher was, was hired to preach. He preaches a sermon on Sunday morning. That's basically the essence of his job. No more than 20, maybe 30 minutes in some places, 20 in others. Something that's well put together and inspires people. It's not so much designed to teach you, open your eyes. When you start teaching in the Bible, we, I've known this true my whole life and so have you. When you start teaching people what the Bible says, you get a little uncomfortable because you realize you haven't done that or you haven't tried to do that. And attention is being brought to you personally by the Lord of where you're failing and why you're not doing well. It's not a time to get up, get mad and quit. It's a time to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and admit that he's right and you're wrong and then give him thanks for the right. That he's showing you something. You practice this, he won't have to judge you. If you don't practice this, you'll have to be judged. God wants to spare us. He doesn't want us to perish. So he gives us the good word that he watches over to perform, that pleases him when it's in eye. He honors his word above his name. I mean, it's his word. This is what should be happening with us in a church setting. We should be learning about the things of God. Well, we have our teaching meetings on Wednesday night. Were you in a church like that? The midweek service? Y'all never even went to church when you were growing up, did you? I'm the only one. Okay, when I was a kid, not any of you, but when I was growing up, we had a Wednesday midweek service and about one-fifth of the church came because it wasn't necessary. It wasn't Sunday morning. Sunday morning, you had communion and you had 100 people, 150 people there. But Wednesday night, there might be 20 or 30. Really inspired the preacher. You couldn't even get behind the pulpit. You had to get him a little stand like this, a little music stand, and sit down on the floor and talk a little while, about 20 minutes, and we'd all sing a hymn, go home. We just didn't know anything. Nobody was careful to teach us. It's like there was no pressure on, on a leadership 
to inform the people of the ways of God. It's not like God was requiring us to live this way. It's not like this is a mandate. This is what we're supposed to live by. It was kind of a book of suggestions and good ideas. And, you know, if you can't, well, the liberal mind would say, well, God knows you're just flesh. And this is, most of this is over our head. Just do the best you can. We live with that. And we all had to leave that. Everybody in here, you left that. You had to get away from that, and you came here. And then you you realize that it wasn't an easy walk. It's not an easy life. Half, two-thirds, three-quarters, four-fifths of everybody that's ever come here has left. They didn't stick around. Some did. You did. Most of them left. There's just so many things that factored in that talked them out of the way of God, and they just were overcome by something and gave in and looked for something that costs nothing, challenges nothing, where you can make up your own mind, decide what you think is right, and that's all you got to do. Because of ignorance, well, Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for what? Lack of knowledge. God's people are going to be assaulted by the enemy. That's what that verse implies. And when the enemy comes against them, they cannot resist him. They don't have a word because the word is like a weapon. They don't have any word. The Holy Spirit comes with that sword to defend us, but he has no sword because we've given him nothing to fight with. And so we get beat up. Isaiah 5.13, you don't have to turn to it, says, My people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. They don't know. I mean, it's a book full of victory and power and might and weaponry and making us more than overcomers, Romans says. I mean, all of this is there. It's for our consuming. We have to get in here and dig in and dive in and learn as much as we can about it. It's there. We'll meet two days a week and do our best to dive right in. We'll stay at least an hour. We'll preach at least an hour. If you average it out, it's probably an hour or a little bit because we want to major on information. You shall know the truth. And Jesus said, the truth will make you free. He didn't say membership, didn't say water baptism. He didn't say busy, ex loving things you do do not make you free. But he said it's the truth that makes you free. Turn to Ephesians 4 and verse 18. This is a tragedy. This is a modern-day tragedy. It is as I speak. It will be when Jesus comes. Listen to it. Having the understanding darkened, being cut off, separated or alienated from the life of God through what? Through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Isn't that tragic? We don't have to have blind hearts. 
what is it, Second Corinthians 4, says the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not. The people who talk themselves out of what you're saying while you're saying it, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. You got such a negative outlook. I don't know about that. Well, yeah, yeah. The devil masters that. Makes you efficient at being like that. And you kick out the word that was said. Sometimes that's just a preacher's opinion. I don't think he knows what he's talking about. And so you kick it out. It no longer becomes a weapon in your life, what you heard. My Bible says that their understanding is darkened because they're cut off from the life of God through ignorance. Well, let me ask you a question. Look at that verse. Can we partake of the life of God through knowledge? Isn't that the way we do it? That's Second Peter 1, verse 3 and 4. That's what Peter talked about. The, the divine nature, remember that? Through knowledge, we partake of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I don't know what inspires all of you that are here tonight or are watching. I don't know. I don't know what your favorite spiritual meal is. I don't know what the grand pursuit of your life is. I don't know. But I know this. I know this, and this is basic, fundamental stuff. Only the Word can bring the reality of Jesus and His power into your life. There's no other way to tap into the resources of heaven but by through His Word. And if the devil can keep you ignorant, if the devil can keep you satisfied with your opinion, you know what your opinion is? Your opinion is how you see it how you figured it out. And to you, that's knowledge. That's verifiable, valid knowledge because it's you. It's how you see it. You don't have to hold it up against the word because you figured it out already. And when somebody preaches a word and it doesn't say that, what your opinion is, you're offended because you're cut off from the life of God. You can't see. There's a darkness. There's a blindness that separates you from seeing the truth. That's why we remain so many times the way we were instead of the way that we should be. Second thing that we have to overcome is stress. Stress. Worldly pressure. Things that make you worry. Anxiety. I don't know. I couldn't give you a number. I doubt if any of us could. You might be able to Google it up if you had time just how much money drug companies make off stress. How many drugs are there to calm you down? How many people have high blood pressure because of stress? Or they have internal problem because when they eat, they worry and their chemical reaction and the stuff that's added to your bloodstream through all of that stuff. It just affects you adversely. And you got to take pills for that and drugs for that. And then somebody said, well, that could be this. And the radio commercial said, you know, if you have this, it could be this. Then you begin to worry and worry is a companion of 
stress. I don't think any of us have a right to worry. I don't think any of us do. I don't think any of us have that privilege to worry. It's not a privilege. It's the work of the devil. Because you see, you worry because you don't have a solution. You worry because you don't know what to do. Now, what if you believe the Bible? If you believe what God said you ought to do and the promises that he promised, would you worry about where you're going? No. Why? Because, well, God said he would take care of it. The remedy for worry then would be faith in God. But that's what overcomers have. The victory that overcomes the world, the systems of the world, the threats and the fears of the world is faith. That is, by taking God at his word, counting on God to do what he said. That's how you do it. How many do that? I hope. A bunch of us do. But there's a lot of people, if you're around them long, and you know this, or your family or your friends from wherever, or people you meet on the street. I don't know how much you talk to people. I don't see many people outside the church not looking for them. But most of the people out there are afraid. They're scared. They're scared because they don't know what to do. They're not sure about what the Bible says. And if you show it to them in the Bible, what they can trust in, they're not really sure God will do that for them. And therefore they worry. Remember what Peter said, casting some of your care, casting how much of your care? All of it. Casting all your care over on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. Now, if God cares for me, what am I going to worry about? If God truly is for me, who's going to be against me? Who is mightier than God? Who can sling God aside and overcome God? Nothing or nobody. And you're seated with him in heavenly places. And you're looking at things in this life that make you worry. Maybe it's something physical. Maybe it's a, a pain, a swelling, something that's serious. I don't mean to make fun of this. I, there's something that really is a matter of, mm. and the challenge is this could cost you your health or your life. It's not funny. And you're wondering if this is going to be okay. What's going to happen? Well, the preacher says, what does the Bible say? What does Scripture say? Do you believe that? Do you believe what you say the Bible said? Do you believe it? Now, if you believe it, act like it. What if it doesn't, doesn't work? Well, you might as well say to God that you're a liar. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not... His word is a liar, 1 John 2, 4. So you come to the place where this overcoming thing comes at you with, boy, the devil has owned me. I've thought and lived like this my whole life. I've given in to this pressure here my whole life. I've thought like this and saw the angle this way my whole life, and now God says, no, that's not my way. My ways are higher than your ways, and so forth. 
If you want to have the victory, God, do things my way. You can't worry about things. Take no thought. Jesus said it five times about your clothes, even your life, even your life. He even said in Luke 14, if you want to be a disciple, you give up your life. You turn it over to him. You sign it over to him. It's his property now. You do whatever he wants. It takes a while to come to that. But that's what he wants. A third thing that you've got to overcome at the devil is a weapon of the devil's pride. Who you think you are. What you think you are. How many times are people successful in some way and really gloat themselves in their success? How many people are spiritually successful, memorize the Bible, do wonderful things, preach sermons, and are so proud of it? Look what I've done. Look where I've been. Look at all the places I've gone. How many hundred have I led to the Lord? And they keep track of all these things. They're so proud. So they just enjoy who they are so much. God rejects pride. I don't think you'll find anybody in heaven who is proud and haughty. I don't think you'll find one. In fact, if you look in Proverbs just chapter 16 and verse 5 to see for yourself just one of many verses. Proverbs 16 and verse 5. Everyone that is proud... In heart. See, you can't see a man's heart, but that's where his pride is. That's where her pride is. She is so important. She is so cute. He is so important. He is so accomplished. It's that air about him. Humility is just a word. And the Bible says they're an abomination. 16 to verse Five, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Well, they're not saved, are they? Are saved people abominable to the Lord? No, listen, that's one of the things God deals with. You've got to overcome pride. Sometimes pride is just wanting people to know that you did it. I'm the one that did it. I gave it. I'm the one that gave that much money. That big check was mine. <clears throat> Sometimes that's what pride is. In essence, pride robs God of his glory. We should be praising God, but now we have to praise you. Just glad I had it to give. Sometimes it's tough to do something big and let nobody know it. To do it indiscreetly. Give something, help somebody, buy something. Just relieve somebody in a, in a pretty big way. And yet, nobody ever knew that you did it. And boy, the devil says, just tell one person that you know will talk. And then when everybody finds out, just humble, say, well, I'm just glad I had it to give. And be proud of how humble you are. Pride is one of those things that puffs us up. It makes us fight. It makes us say, I thank thee, God, I'm not like other men. I'm not like... And I've been dealt with this. I think that I'm not like Baptist or Methodist or whatever. All of those people have things to offer you that I haven't. 
I've come to realize that there's a lot of people, a lot of churches that love the Lord as much, if not more, than a bunch of us do. I may not agree with their approach to the word, but I'm going to leave them alone best I can. I'm against religion. I am. I'm against religion that kills people. I'm against the religion that promotes man and his deadness and makes people feel like that's what God wants. I am against that. But as far as all these other groups and people, my great, 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 maybe another great in there, but grandpa was a Baptist minister. That probably makes me a little Baptist. My daddy was a Catholic, but I ain't claiming that either. But pride is a terrible thing. I'm going to show you something in, in Paul's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Not only is pride before God as an abomination, but it's a very dangerous thing because it's the reason the devil fell. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, talking about those who should lead and rule in the church, describing some of their qualities. He said this, not a novice, not somebody that's new in the Lord, not somebody that just arrived on the scene that we don't know much about. We haven't seen them prove themselves yet. Notice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Several translations puts the word same right before condemnation, which said, lest they fall into the same condemnation of the devil. Didn't Jesus say, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven? Doesn't the Bible speak of in Ezekiel the story about, he said, I will exalt myself above the stars. I will be and I will be. And he was cast down because of his pride. What was it the devil told Eve? Said, God knows you eat that food, you'll be like him. Pride. That's why sin came into the world. It's pride. It's the devil's weapon. A famous man couldn't be a part of this church. An important political figure in town couldn't be a part of this church because of the stigma that's attached to us. That church, they believe this stuff. And you say, well, what do you believe? They don't know what they believe. They just know they don't believe the way you believe. And to be identified with people like us, some people are willing to do it. Did I ever tell you the story about a little storefront church in Louisville? I made that up when I was telling, but it's a good story. Because the senator, the United States senator, wrestling with an issue, when he heard that little storefront preacher just yelling in that microphone, what he heard was not so much the noise as the message. And God directed the message into his heart, and what he heard was personal. And his life at that moment began to change. And God sent him back to that church. Next thing you know, he was there before it started, singing their songs with him sitting in the same crowd, but inside hoping nobody would see him there because what would happen to him? Just like Nicodemus, the man that came to Jesus by night for fear of the Jews. Boy, this would ruin my ministry if somebody saw me here talking to him. Well, that's the same thing true with whatever God is doing on this earth. 
not many mighty, not many great, you know, 1 Corinthians 1. There's not a lot of people like that that God adds to his people. It costs them too much to believe what the Bible says. The challenge is too great to their security and their future. What if you lost that? What if you could only depend on God? Hmm. They're just not willing to pay a price like that. You know why? Pride. It's just pride. We, we separate ourselves from other people sometimes because I think that God, I'm not like those people are. I mean, in the church. I believe in separation, but within the church and amongst Christian people, sometimes it's, it's just a, it's pride. It's a terrible thing, but the devil uses that to overcome us and to keep us from overcoming that. And as long as we're proud, we're being overcome in any degree to any measure of it. As long as we're proud, we're being overcome. A fourth thing, just being unteachable. Don't want to hear it. I'm a member of a church, but I didn't come here to hear that. If you're going to teach on Christmas, I'm not coming, somebody said once. If you're going to teach on holidays, I'm not coming. I don't want to know. But you know what that sounds like? That sounds like the end of Romans 1. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 28, it says about people that are doomed. One of the reasons they were doomed is because they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. His ways, his word, his demands, this mandate, they did not like to retain that. They obviously heard it. You couldn't reject something you'd never heard. They obviously did hear it. They didn't want it. So they begin to close their ears, close their eyes, and then God joins them. He closes their ears and he shuts their eyes. They're unteachable. You can't teach them. They don't receive instruction. They'll walk away from it as though they never heard it because I don't know that they did hear it. They have eyes to see. They can't see. They have ears to hear. They can't hear. They're the very people that Jesus spoke in parables to. And that's why he said what I just said. It's not given to them, he said, to know the truth of the kingdom. What an awful sentence. It is not given unto them to know the truth. Therefore, their eyes are shut. Or as Isaiah taught, but they have been given a spirit of slumber. They're dumb dogs that cannot bark. They don't even know the difference between right and wrong, and they live their whole life. And the only time they're awakened is at that last moment. Then they realize they have no weapons, no hope, nothing they can turn to and worship God with. It's over. What a tragedy that is. What a terrible tragedy that is. They're just unteachable. And finally, fifthly, turn to Hebrews 5 for this one. This one could be a long one, but I'll make it a short one. They have no discernment. They're non-discerning. They are not discerning. They latch on to things without thinking about where it's going, who's behind it, what does it mean? Well, the preacher said he loves the Lord. 
Did he say that? He said, well, these people love the Lord. How many times in the last 30 years have a request come up from some of you about somebody I don't know and don't have a clue about? I don't know anything about them. I want them all to be well, but I don't know why they're not well or why things are going on. And one of the things that people say in order to justify us praying, they love the Lord. How do you know? Do they love the Lord because they said they do? Would you like to hear a sermon on how you love the Lord? No, not tonight. Not tonight. Jesus made a big deal out of that too. He said, if a man loves me, what does he do? He keeps my word. He's certainly not unteachable. But he said in Hebrews 5, have you found it yet? All right. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews says, verse 11, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you're hard to teach. You're dull of hearing. You don't listen. But when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need again that someone teach you the first principles of the oracles of God and become as such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are full age. It's a word meaning mature, grown. Even those, this is how they got that way, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. To discern is to see the difference. There's a gift of the spirit called the discerning of spirits. It's the same word here. It's the ability to see into the spirit world and discern the spirit as the spirit of the devil and the spirit of Christ or the spirit of God, angels, angels or demons. Or what kind of spirit is operating in a person? Sometimes it's called the gift of suspicion the discerning of spirits on and being discerning here is a word that has to do with being able to tell the difference. Look how naive, which is sort of the opposite of discernment. Look how naive the Christian church is. They're so naive about occult things. Like they'll have a Halloween party in the church and cannot see the difference between the devil and what the Bible says about the devil and the evil that is of the devil and our requirement to avoid the appearance of evil, to shun the appearance of evil. Isn't that in the Bible? Yet they do it anyway. Why? Is it they don't want to lose people by not doing what other churches do? And therefore, we want to do what they do so the people will keep coming back. Do we quit doing Halloween and become controversial? Then people quit because we're difficult, legal, or they do Christmas. You know, and, and there's so many things there that, you, that are not spiritual or not Christian. So many things. Well, I won't go into all that now. Or, or all these, some of these special days that the church has are just things that are not right. And the reason those of you that have taken a stand against that and changed the course of your life with regard to that You've done it because of light. God showed you the difference between that. There is no Santa Claus. You want to shut your kids' ears? You can, but there is no little fat man in a red suit that comes down chimneys. There are not many chimneys left in the world. 
You don't leave him notes on the table and then him come and get it and leave a cookie on the table by or whatever. That's occult. That's beyond the bounds of ordinary knowledge that God has. It's unusual. And you got to see the difference. As a Christian, I have to discern. Not long ago, a visitor came here and he was mysterious to me. But right away, my antennas started flying. I mean, all the antennas I have, they all flopped up like, you know. The more we talk, the more you begin to read through some stuff. But one of these guys that practices Old Testament holy days and uses Old Testament language for Jesus. He's, they don't call him Jesus, Yeshua, and they practice Passover, all the things about Passover. That stuff is all passed away. That was a type, a shadow, a picture of what was coming. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life. He said, well, they testify of me. I was in all of this. I came to make it real. I fulfilled it. Now there is a new way. It's called faith. We don't live by the law. Well, see, after a point, I, I quit listening. He would talk a little bit more, and I said, well, you know, I, I got things to do. I got a family to feed and got things to do. Thanks for coming. Nice to see you. Bye. And he left. Needed to get up and go. But sometimes you hear people prophesy. You ever heard somebody prophesy and you go, whoo, I don't know about that. I've heard that so much in my life. One time a lady came to me. She said, I got a word for you. It's up in Indianapolis, Indiana. A long time ago, my hair was brown. I was better looking then. And she said, I got a word for you. All right. She said, I don't want to, I can't tell it here. I didn't go over here. She said, no, I, I want, I wanted to go to your room and tell you, I don't think so. I don't think so. She wanted to go up to my room. Give me a word. I said, I don't think so. Don't you want to hear what the Lord has to say? Oh, of course I would. But if you want to tell me, you can tell me now. Otherwise, it's, I guess I just won't know. And then she wrote me a very ugly letter. Almost put curses on it. And you should have, and you could have, and, and now this. And I, I just disregard that stuff. The devil can't use that against me and say, oh, boy, what if she really is the real deal? She was not. <laughs> so forget it. She was not the real deal. The prophet who came to the church in New Orleans many years ago, I got prophecies tonight for all of you. I'll tell you what I do. I'm a, I have $100, $500, $1,000 prophecies. And some of them signed up for $1,000 prophecies. I cannot imagine coming out with 10 big ones so somebody can prophesy to me. Can you imagine Jesus? How many shekels you give me for a good prophecy? How many donkeys are in it for a really good prophecy tonight? Your discerner button has to fly up and say, that's not God. Barking, shaking and stretching and like this one movement, so-called, back in the mid-90s. A woman sitting on the stage holding her stomach and other women around. I think, what's wrong with her? 
she's in labor. I thought she's too old to be in labor. She ain't in labor. <laughs> spiritual labor. She's about to give birth to something spiritual. These were spiritual midwives with her. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. You've got to be able to discern. Now, sometimes you really don't know. You're not sure. Sometimes there's just enough decency in it that I just keep my mouth shut. But I hear some people in back in the 90s, so-called prophets, making fun of the faith message. Right away, my discerner goes up and I said, I don't receive this. I think I was the only one in the whole camp. I think I lost most of my friends over this. Then the guy turns out later on to be a confirmed alcoholic and a homosexual. Well, so much for that. There are just some things after 44 years in my life of being around this, studying this, watching this in other people, hearing a little bit there and reading a little bit here and there, there are just some things don't fit. If the devil can get you to receive another spirit, then you pick up something that will begin to control you and you won't be able to overcome it. If the prophet or the dreamer of dreams in Deuteronomy 13 comes along, prophesies something, it comes to pass. Wow. But his message is misleading. Have no fear of that man. You walk away from him. God is testing you. Folks, the only way we're going to be able to discern anything in this life is for the word to have its lodging place in our heart and to be our guide. Because if they speak not, according to this word, they have no light. Are you overcomers? Stand to your feet. You're free to go. God bless all of you. Amen.